Hi, I'm Mark Kent. And I'm Jacob Pusey. And you're listening to the Art and Science of Running podcast. If you climb, then you will see. Welcome everyone to episode one of uh, the podcast and um, to kick off episode one, uh, myself and Jacob are going to do what is logical, which is explain who we are and explain a bit about our backgrounds and uh, essentially introduce ourselves. So uh, I should probably explain as well as, uh, as we sat here. Um, we have quite a cosy setup, <laughs> quite a cosy set, uh, basement setup and, um, and it's uh, uh, myself and Jacob and um, just sat around a mic uh, and that's us. So um, obviously I, I've known you for uh, for the last year and uh, got to know you quite quick. But for everyone out there, um, could you talk us through a bit about your background, so sort of how you came into running and then your kind of uh, potted history through running and coaching and up to today? <laughs> sure. Yeah, um, it, it has been a, a quick um, packed year uh, of, of working together and getting to know one another. Um, I started running in middle school. Uh, that was competitive running. Uh, I wasn't terribly competitive, but I um, I did begin training to compete in middle school. Um, that was primarily to get in shape for basketball, which was my, my true love. Uh, I also loved soccer. Um, running for fun didn't seem to make sense to me at the time, uh, but it was one way that I felt I could distinguish myself um, as a, as a basketball player or soccer player. Um, so I did that and it didn't take long before I, I began to just really fall in love with the process of running. And so I, I ran through middle school, through high school. It took a few years before I actually started seeing results or for, before anyone else began noticing any results with the, with the efforts that I was putting in as a runner. But, uh, I found it, very satisfying and um so i continued to do it i i ran in in the state of oregon in a rural farm town in in oregon and uh i was in a rather competitive conference and um just never never even made it out of my conference in track or cross country and so i i didn't qualify for the state meet uh the state championships which meant that I, my my options to run collegiately were quite limited, <laughs> because that's typically where where coaches look is the state meet results or the provincial meet results, and I was never in them uh, in track. And I did finally qualify uh, as a senior in high school for the the Oregon State Cross Country Meet, and so I I did run there. I ran there with my team even though um, <laughs> we didn't do great. Um, we, we placed fourth at the state meet that year, and that was a, a big 
that was the first time in, in a number of years that my team had been there or that my high school had been represented at the meet. So, so that was good for me, but I didn't stand out or anything and no one else on my team did that year. Uh, I walked onto a junior college and I ran there for two years. It was called Rick's College at the time. And uh, we won two uh, junior college cross country team national titles uh, when I was there. And then I, um, I actually took a break from running for a couple years. <laughs> Didn't run a step for two years. Got fat, um, spent some time in Latin America. Uh, it was probably a really good thing. I was exhausted. I was training really hard to try and make a competitive team and also trying to pay for my school through um, academics. And so I didn't sleep a lot, ran a lot, and was pretty burnt out by that time. Um, but through that process and through even just those two transitions from one coach to the next, I I'd noticed a big difference between coaching styles and emphasis on relationships versus emphasis on science. And, and then I ended up with another uh, college coach uh, for the last couple of years and ultimately went back um, to my alma mater in Oregon and coached there for about eight years. And um, again, never really even thought that I would be involved in running beyond just running. I didn't ever plan on coaching, um, but it just kind of doors opened to volunteer um, while I was a university student and also after that and so I started doing it and was fortunate to be in in some places where there were a lot of really good mentors to to learn from and so I started asking and reading and <laughs> I took my um, passion for learning about other things um, toward running and um, feel like I have had a rather balanced um, approach to to learning from from a number of coaches with a lot of different philosophies but um, so the Pacific Northwest the United States was a good place to do that and that's where I was able to do that and then I spent some time in Flagstaff working for Greg McMillan and uh, Ian Torrance at McMillan Running and uh, eventually branched out and um, started my own coaching um, company, uh, Peak Run Performance. Um, in between all that, I spent a lot of time in studying basically everything other than running, and uh, and that entailed <laughs> basically anything that could fall under the humanities. I, I received degrees in um, international cultural studies <laughs> and world languages, um, linguistics, um, linguistic anthropology uh, was a focus of one of the degrees. Um, I did a lot with language preservation and revitalization and biolinguistic diversity. And so I, I tried to learn as much as I could about everything I could. And it happened to involve culture and people and languages. And I've tried to apply that, um, that understanding of languages and language learning to to the learning of skill acquisition, or learning and skill acquisition required to be a runner. And so that's that's the approach that I come to running and coaching with, is that of a um, an artist <laughs> or a linguist. Um, and with, with ample science uh, behind it. So, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, I, I met 
Malka, uh, like he said about a year ago, and um, I've I've spent a lot of time in in science um, classrooms and didn't always enjoy those experiences. Um, <laughs> and I've spent some time around some some very brilliant minds, but again, didn't didn't always enjoy those experiences um, either because I didn't understand or because I felt like they were intentionally trying to make things confusing. And one thing that uh, stood out to me immediately was that um, Mount knows a lot, but somehow has the ability to to speak to the lay person. So, um, Malk, do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you came to work with, with runners as well? Sure, so, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, i got questions in my mind that I'm going to ask you later on. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so I started, I can't even remember when I, I mean, I got into running as a kid, you know, um, just uh, similar to yourself, a lot of outdoor space, a lot of energy, um, diagnosed hyperactive, not ADHD, but just hyperactive at a young age. And um, and so I started running cross country. I can't even remember when really, but I can remember going to a cross country race when I was about six or seven years old, and being the youngest kid there, and that was kind of classic, you know, on um, on sort of dried out grass and dirt. Um, didn't have proper running shoes or anything. And I remember doing like my first formal race when I was about nine years old, about nine or ten, and it was like a three mile race um, in the UK. And again, I was like the youngest kid there. Um, and um, I think I forgot to count how many laps of the, the course I was going to be doing. I don't even know if my finishing place was actually legit or not because you had to count the laps of the course. Uh, then I got into cross country at 11 because cross country is like, is very big, you know, like the US, it's very big in Britain. Um, it's a very tra traditional kind of thing. It's sort of handed out in school um, from 11 as a sort of form of torture in the winter. So you basically wear, you know, uh, shorts and t-shirt in about minus five and rain or, or snow. And... Um, and and the the teachers like the kind of the physical education teachers will just basically like stand in in the dry area, you know, in the shelter, just sending the kids off as they freeze for an hour. <laughs> Most of the kids don't even bother running the course; they'll like cheat on the course. And uh, it was me and my mate Doug. Basically, we were the only two kids that actually took it seriously and ran the the proper five mile loop course around this huge park. And uh, we used to race each other head to head. Didn't want to lose to the other other person, so that got me into. Um, uh, what we call like county level uh, athletics cross country and then I went on 15-16 uh, to English schools championship which is the highest level in, in the UK um, running against guys like Mo Farah and Chris Thompson and Stephen and people like that um, no idea who Mo Farah was at the time <laughs> I couldn't even see the front of the <laughs> I was like in the middle or something I couldn't even see who won the race but um, but that's what I grew up with like really muddy course cross country kind of stuff I got into orienteering as well I was a uh, national champion in orienteering at 16, um, which um, which just suited me because my brain, it wasn't I was the fittest or the best runner in, in the national championships, but it was more the fact that I was just a really good navigator for some reason, just the way my brain worked. Um, so I used to spend less time at the checkpoints than other people, less time at the start figuring out the order of the checkpoints and stuff. Um, maybe a scientific part of my brain was on there as well. But um, I, I had a separate career after that um, in another sport, competing for Great Britain uh, for 14 years. Um, but I was always interested in uh, strength training. Like that was the first thing that came along. When I was 14, I used to play uh, rugby at, uh, at national level as well. And um, the problem was, is I was like the smallest person in the rugby team. So I had to learn how like not to come back in an ambulance, basically. <laughs> when you, there's this funny thing happens, like when you're 15, 16 in Britain and you're playing rugby, um, 
the kids go through adolescence and they really change a lot. And so I'd line up on the opposite side to picture some guys with big beards and be like, I don't think they're 15, 16. And, and the coach would swear blindly for 15, 16. And I was like, but they're six foot two, don't make any sense. Um, so self-preservation meant that I had to learn to strength train. So I actually built um, uh, a strength training gym, my mum and dad's uh, spare garage. Uh, and then I used to have people from the local running club used to come and uh, strength train. So I, I guess I started strength training people at 14, in theory, with a lot of homemade equipment. Um, and then from about um, the age of, uh, I'd say like probably 21, 22, is when I started to like formally coach people in different sports and formally strength train people. Um, my background academically is in, um, is in applied physics and mechanics, that area. So biomechanics was always going to be the field. And like the last 14 years, I've either worked as an applied scientist or I've worked in biomechanics or mechanics, something like that. And, um, and then it was probably a big turning point would have been about uh, eight years ago when I first got approached by a university in the UK who were interested in using wearable technology to measure biomechanical movement in sport. Um, so that's when I, the light bulb switched on for me of like, wow, we can get out of the lab and we can do stuff in the real world with wearable technology. And at that time, like eight years ago, it was unheard of. Like there was very little. I mean, this was a university coming to me with some prototypes that just kind of like thrown together and so um, um, you know Garmin had a basic foot pod at that time that could only just do like speed and um, uh, I think cadence as well and distance and stuff that was very little really in the marketplace so um, the last eight years for me has been really going down this avenue of like how do we measure people in their real sporting environments using wearable technology and, and get them away from the lab um, and um, yeah as I, I'm sure we'll like get into then I've worked with a lot of different um, tech companies, shoe companies, um, all kinds of different groups in the last eight years, and then sort of some human performance stuff as well, working with Red Bull High Performance down in California and um, uh, doing some stuff with uh, Adidas or Adidas <laughs> um, <clears throat> in uh, in Germany and um, and then obviously Nike more recently. And so, um, so that's kind of my background. And today I work, as you know, um, kind of combining uh, biomechanical analysis with runners with uh, strength training because I believe that uh, the worst thing in the world is to tell someone that you don't run very well and you've got like a deficiency or dysfunction <laughs> and then they walk away and there's no action plan on how to deal with it. So um, um, so that kind of seamless combination of, um, of, of analysis and assessment with, um, with strength training is, um, is the way forward. And right now, yeah, I work in, uh, in a clinic based in Calgary. We're a relatively new clinic where we integrate physiotherapy into, into the mix as well and try and give people kind of a full service um, uh, of support and uh, we work with yeah road runners trail runners kind of the the, the a wide range of runners pretty much yeah so that's me <laughs> yeah thank you um I, I know we both have a lot a lot of stories to share from from the different people that that we ran with um it, when i was in high school so one of the one of the guys that I I had to try and compete with um, in our conference was was Jesse Thomas who who mm -hmm. went on to run it at Stanford and um, then has become a professional triathlete and and was actually on en route to to qualifying for the for the marathon trials recently the Olympic trials um, before he broke his foot but um, so so yeah there were guys like him Ashton Eaton was also in our oh, wow. in our conference um, so it was kind of like if you weren't a god you couldn't actually qualify for the state meet um, and I I was a prepubescent um, 
not <laughs> deity. Uh, uh, so I didn't quite qualify for uh, much in high school, but it was it was a lot of fun to be there and see it. Uh, there was also a guy named uh, Ian Dobson who was my age, but just dominated the scene throughout not just the Pacific Northwest, but throughout the country um, and was almost undefeated throughout wow. high school um, <laughs> other than, you know, occasionally running against Ryan Hall and Dathan Ritzenheim. Those were about the only two guys that ever even like challenged him. And, and so for the last two decades, some of the best runners in, in at least North America were guys that I used to <laughs> have to try and compete with in high school. So, um, for better or worse, you know, I, I got to be a fanboy and, and try and follow in their footsteps. And, and it really did open a lot of doors for me. Um, even though I didn't necessarily see it at the time, um, I feel like it, it taught me to love the process without necessarily always getting that trophy or that gold star next to my name, um, at, at every race. And so, so one of the things that we were having discussion about before, yeah. um, before we actually started the podcast, um, was the idea of um, uh, in, at a real high level mm-hmm. of um, the use of uh, technology and, and, and data, mm-hmm. um, and, and we see it from like two different sides of the fence. And as we go through the podcast, we're basically always going to be sort of batting the ball forwards, <laughs> back across the fence uh, from two perspectives. Um, so yeah, like um, what's uh, what's standard for you? Like when you when you're looking at someone's um, data online or whatever coming back to you um does everybody i mean does everyone have a gps watch that you coach or or not like uh when i first started coaching no uh in fact (laughs) when when gps watches started showing up at high school practice and when strava came out I, i i actually like tried to control it and say okay not allowed to wear them at least on your easy days even though they could be beneficial they they weren't the, the the kid even if it was one kid they would they would get into well I need to I need to PR today from what I did at my last easy run and it was like no 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 but you have a race tomorrow the goal is to PR tomorrow so uh, yeah I fought technology tooth and nail <laughs> um, and fortunately you know it was it was a struggle to get shoes on most of my athletes like it, it wasn't like <laughs> there were a lot of Apple watches running around town <laughs> at least on my athletes. Um, so that being said, uh, I work with uh, a different demographic now, um, mostly um, professionals or, or adults. I, I still occasionally get to work with a, a high school athlete here or there, only if they don't have a high school coach. Like I, that's that's my, I will not work with someone if they have another coach. I don't agree with doing that yeah. to the coach or to the athlete. But um, so but but for the most part, the the athletes that I work with are adults who have jobs who either have a GPS watch or, or have a Strava app on their phone or some way of tracking time and distance at the very least and sometimes heart rate and, and a few other metrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So um, then, then the obvious question, <laughs> really, like uh, um, what's your philosophy basically? Like um, if someone's collected the whole, the kitchen sink, they, they've, they've got the whole gamut of data. Um, so they've got heart rate, they've got pace, they've got... Um, um, maybe they've even got like some power data or something like that mm-hmm. as well, um, elevation data, or whatever. Um, do you have a, a philosophy around it, or like, um, is there? Do you, do you treat all data equally, or there's some things you like to sort of um, put more weight weight on, or? You know, it, it is specific to the individual and to the event that they're training for, and so 
if someone is say training for a track event, uh, I don't do that as much, but occasionally, at least the shorter track, mid distance type events, pace matters a lot for a few work, one or two workouts or races. <laughs> um, or even if someone's training for a marathon, there may be a little bit more emphasis on on marathon pace or a, a few paces here or there. Um, by and large, however, the majority of the training plans and or training activities that I prescribe are time-based. And so the number one metric that I use is time. And, and that's for a number of different reasons. So there, there's the attention span and, and so just being able to do that deliberate practice or that deep work and just being focused, even on an easy run, doing what you're supposed to be doing and focusing on proper form and, um, or even just your breathing or things like that. I, most activities that I prescribe range between 45 minutes and 90 minutes. And, um, and you know, if someone's gonna do multiple activities throughout a day, there will be a break. Um, but I do it by time. The other piece is the metabolism uh, piece, and that's where um, fueling becomes important, and, and just understanding, you know, when when your body's going from uh, feeding off of the glycogen stores or the carbs to fat, and <laughs> needing to be ready for hydration and, and other things like that. So so time is really important, regardless of what um, the athlete's training for, whether they're training for a stage race or an ultra marathon or or training for a 5K. Time time is the number one metric, and so even even before people were able to upload all their data uh, when I used to use Excel or, or Google Sheets, I would I would ask, record your time. And if you're able to record it, upload your, your distance, which will give us the pace. Um, those are probably the three most important things that I look at. Uh, and then heart rate would be the next. Um, but again, heart rate doesn't mean much if I can't see how it relates to how long they've been going or and then it, eventually the layers of elevation so does the heart rate spike because you were going up a hill or uh, or what was the weather like so so there are a ton of metrics that are important but um, typically I ask my athletes to just record the data f as for as long a period as time as possible so that we can then go back and mm. look at it longitudinally rather than just in one isolated instance it's um, interesting you mentioned that because like uh, i was talking to somebody in the clinic this week and they were talking about the idea of um no, actually that's lies i actually saw so i was actually running with someone from the clinic and um and they were they were switching the session on and off so if we got to a, a road to an intersection they would switch the session off right and then until they ran again um which is fair enough right okay they just want to see the, the average data for them only running yeah um but then uh, from a data point of view, it's like, like you say, um, there's, there's some interesting data there in how, how quickly you recovered when you stopped at the lights, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then it's kind of like, there's a psychology part of it, which, you know, you're, you're kind of looking at me like, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a psychology part of it as well, right? Because people don't want to... <laughs> yeah, they don't want that slow pace to then be broadcast to the world on Strava. And I... It, but the challenge is that a lot of times, even though watches do have the autopause function, many of them do, a lot of times when people stop it, I'm guilty of this as well. Um, usually I only stop it if I'm wrangling kids and I know it's going to be a while, <laughs> changing yeah. a diaper or something like that, uh, but uh, or, or wrestling with a bear or something like that. But um, <laughs> if you if you stop it, uh, sometimes you forget to start it. And then it, one of the, 
without fail a couple times a day i get a message from someone saying hey i really ran further than this or but the my watch only says yeah. this and and sometimes it is the technology's fault but right. usually there's human but normally you start, yeah yeah you start the person starts running again they do not yeah hit the watch you're trying to again. catch that light or you're trying to yeah. you know get in uh before the rain comes or something like that so yeah it uh i think there was a guy on sunday um who i've known for quite a long time uh maybe five years and um he'd actually run the first i think four kilometers of the run and then forgotten that on the Garmin watch you have to hit the same button twice, not once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they're all different, you know. Some of them, some of them have a lock, like so you have to hold it and then hold it exactly, hold it again. Um, so I do that all, all the time. Like I try to pause it and it doesn't pause because I haven't held it long enough and then hit it again. And so, yeah, I, I'm guilty uh, as well. Um, but uh, as a, from a coaching standpoint, I, I generally really just want people to get the time in on their feet and then you know for them personally to to be able to feel how the various efforts and or heart rates uh heart rate is one way of viewing that power uh would be another um or watts um would what what those values how that how they all layer over one another so what does that feel like when I'm running for this amount of time at this effort and that kind of thing. But, but I, I do feel like too often people get caught up on that and they don't just let their internal GPS or their, their intuitive senses like control that. Um, if anything, I find things like heart rate uh, or power beneficial to actually, you know, keep you from going too hard on your easy days or, mm. um, or even in a race, the, the times that I've really benefited from using those extra layers of technology has not been to make sure that I'm running in the right zone. It's to make sure, well, in, in the goal zone, it's to make sure I'm not running <laughs> beyond the goal zone and, and burn up, you know, because that will mess up my fueling. That will mess up the metabolism that will cause cramping and all, yeah. all of that, all of that. So, um, for the athletes, that's, that's what I try and help them understand when it comes to technology how about you what are when, when you're working with athletes what are what would you say are your top three it's a good question um most of my time i'm measuring uh gate metrics on people yeah so um i started out like originally um always putting a gps watch on the person as well and um and that's because i, I was just open-minded collect as much data as possible and um uh, i thought maybe the heart rate or the power is going to give me some indication of how hard the person's working and um um, and then I can put it into context when I look at the gate data. But um, actually now we've got technology where the pace is pretty accurate actually off the, um, off the gate sensors. So, um, so nowadays I don't bother giving anyone a watch anymore. And they normally turn up with their own watch anyway and they want to like record their own session for their own <laughs> deal anyway. So, um, so I'm like, okay, don't, let's not bother with a watch anymore. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so for me, like, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's really expanded quite a lot in the last um, five years, yeah, four or five years, where we've gone from having like being able to measure um, maybe eight to ten maximum uh, variables uh, as the person runs to today I can measure um, uh, almost 40 really, like probably about 35 variables. And um, maybe 10 or 12 of those are bulk single values, and the rest are all bilateral values where I can differentiate the left side from the right side. And um, some of those still include power, so we still measure power, and we measure that left and right side as well. Um, and pace, obviously, is, is putting it into context. Um, cadence or step rate is, is another one. Um, but um, 
Yeah, so I guess from like from my side, it's um, it's uh, I, I do get people from around the world, of course, who have their own sensors because we sell the sensors to anybody around the world, and um, and I think the biggest thing that I see where where you, you're kind of like you have people um, either maybe like looking at data too much or not, or whatever, and uh, one one of the things I see is people having a crack at interpreting their own because um, uh, that's the world that we live in today. You know, it's it's, it's you're totally free to do this is having a crack at interpreting their own running gate data even basic metrics and um and then they, they, they really form an opinion about their own running uh, <laughs> and then what i have to deal with is um is either telling them they're right or that they're wrong <laughs> and some people are just like no, they're like no way no no, no that can't be right and i'm like no <laughs> it's right and yeah you see that in the clinic um a fair amount um people will come in with and I always say, like, I always blind test. So at the start, I'll say to people, like, don't tell me, um, you know, fill out these forms here and I'm not looking at them. Uh, don't tell me about, you know, every single thing about your running because I'm just going to become biased as well. Um, and sometimes they just can't help it. Like, they start telling me, like, <laughs> I think this is going on. And I'll say, okay, okay, let's, uh, two hours time. We'll see if that's really what's happening or not. And, um, yeah, and some and the, sometimes you can have a huge difference between what the person thinks is happening and, um and what's actually really we're objectively measuring mm-hmm. is actually happening. Uh, but um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, where I've been involved with things like um, development of power meters, stuff like that, um, I, I think that's something, and this is just purely my opinion, where over the last few years, you know, um, it's become more popular and people have jumped on it and thought, right, okay, power is the number one metric to really, um, to really keep your eyes on. Um, but for various reasons, it isn't. <laughs> and um, uh, you know, without getting into too much detail, you know, power is instant- instantaneous. So um, uh, you know, if you if you if you start going on t- technical terrain, your power changes immediately. Normally, it's averaged over about three or five um, steps. So um, so it changes very fast. So if you actually stare at the watch, your gates already changed. Your power's probably dropped just for you looking at the watch. Um, and then, of course, as you know, like. Um, if someone hasn't slept and they've done, <laughs> and they're really fatigued, like the central nervous system is really fatigued, you know, sticking to a power number is not going to help you because you're not, <laughs> the power's not telling you, like it's not responding. You know, like if, if you're trying to hit 300 watts, it's like, well, maybe today isn't. And then what do you do about it? Because then how do you in the moment then scale down, scale down to some other number of watts, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've seen, the, I've seen power sort of like go from being something, I remember in Garmin when we were like looking at it, and talking about it back in 2013, um, no one had a commercial power range at that point for running, and it was like, what's the value of this? And um, it seemed to have value, but I feel like the last few years it's gone beyond that. It's gone beyond. It's 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 more hype than value. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I heard some, who is it? Um, so Stu McMillan, who's a who's a famous coach in um, in America, who works with Altis, who are part of Exos in Arizona, and uh, his group's really sort of always reiterating this idea of systems thinking in the body not reductionist but systems thinking the body is the set of complicated systems that all interact and you change one and then it has an effect on the others and they will have to compensate and I think that in the context of tech means like exactly like you say you have to collect as much data as you can um, because you have, there's a whole system at, at work so if you only blinker yourself to seeing a sub snapshot of, of the system uh, you're basically going to miss now misdiagnose what's happening for sure because you to understand a complex um interdependent system you, you can't just have 
one stream of data and say, <laughs> I understand the system, because there's no way you don't understand the system for sure. Yeah. And, and gate analysis, that's definitely what it's about, mm -hmm. you know, where um, gate analysis is probably one of the most abused terms, I think, in, uh, in running globally, because um, it can mean anything from, um, you know, somebody jumping on a treadmill in a shoe store uh, with a shoe store supervisor who has no idea what they're looking at at all. Just a complete waste of time, really. All the way through to um, to some of the most advanced stuff in the world, where you have um, multiple Vicon cameras at uh, 2,000 frames per second, and you've got markers all over the body and that kind of stuff. So, um, I think if you if what you do is stick someone on a treadmill at one comfortable speed for two minutes in a shoe, you've just completely contravened the whole concept of of systems thinking in the body. Um, so, um, unless you've got some kind of superpower brain that can visually process about 20 data streams simultaneously. <laughs> um, uh, then no, <laughs> no chance. And we know, for example, the brain can only process about 120, 130 bits per second of data. Mm -hmm. Like there's a limit on how fast you can buffer the data through the visual cortex and into short-term memory. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we interpolate so much that we see because we, can't, we cannot buffer into memory fast enough. Um, so you imagine like trying to look at someone running at four minute kilometers pace on the treadmill. Yeah, <laughs> that's about ninety nine percent interpolation that your brain's doing, yeah. <laughs> not data. Well, and and that's that's why I eventually reached out to you, and and I felt like I had reached my ceiling a, a long time ago. Um, but as you mentioned, the demand for quote unquote gate analysis has increased, as has interpretation of data like power, and um, I recognize that there were other people, your, yourself specifically, who were more qualified to do that. And so for our, uh, for the retreats that we've done, you know, rather than me trying to do what I could, even with some of the apps and things like that on phones or iPads, it, it didn't make sense. And I didn't feel like I was able to provide the value that people were looking for. And I just didn't even feel right suggesting that I could with the naked eye or, or even with some, you know, slowing down some frames, tell people what they were experiencing or what they needed to do differently. Um, even though I had done that, you know, for decades as a coach, just, you know, seeing some, some things while people were doing some form drills and things like that, you can identify a few things, uh, that way, but, but at a higher level and, and as far as like, okay, we're going to do this and this to avoid injury or to, um, to recover from this injury, I felt like, um, I needed to bring you on board, um, and and like I mentioned earlier, I I've never I've been in the sport um, and in sport in general my entire life, and haven't never met anyone as qualified, both uh, academically and experientially, but also with the ability to communicate <laughs> as fluidly about it uh, with others. And so I really appreciate this partnership that we've been able to form, and um, I feel like we've been able to add the value that we've been hoping to add to the to the athletes that we work with and um yeah and i think that i think that's a great um that's a great perspective um i've definitely seen a lot of coaches who would um quite happily um take on everything and try and wear 10 hats <laughs> simultaneously <laughs> and feel like a pressure that they have to answer every question have have all of their solutions so um yeah i think that's the reason why we end up working together really because i saw that you had an open mind and um we're willing to um, to um, to just want the best for the athletes, like, um, but not not in a possessive way, but in a in a way of like, you know, um, yeah, how much 
how much expertise can we pull together to um, to give the best answer. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've kind of come to the end of our first uh, podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so it's been a cool um, intro session mm-hmm. for sure. We've got some plans uh, for some for um, some future um, areas we want to touch on and things we want to do. Yeah. But uh, yeah. And we'll we'll be asking for for questions as well. We'll be we'll be pooling um, the the common questions that we receive from day to day in in the work that we do. But for those of you that are listening, if you want to submit questions um, as well, you can you can do that. You can you can tweet that tweet those to us, or or maybe we'll create a spot um, on one of our websites or or something like that. But um, yeah. we we do want to to be a resource for you and feel like we have um, some things that we can offer. So. Awesome. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'll climb atop the highest mountain.